Disc 21 From then on, pro-hunting protests were continual and varied. There were marches at Labour Party conferences, in Scotland, where a separate and earlier ban was being passed, outside Parliament and in many other towns throughout Britain. People had always been on the march about something, but whereas before it had been students in duffel coats, coal miners or left-wingers in leather jackets, this time it was ruddy-faced women in tweed skirts, farm workers and former public schoolboys, Bowden and Loden, Barber and Brogue. In the Blair years, the sound of hunting horns, the excited yelping of hounds and even the clatter of hooves became part of the backdrop of parliamentary life. After a noisy march in Bournemouth, Blair himself joined in the argument, telling his conference in 1999 that he would sweep away the forces of conservatism and branding the Conservatives the party of fox-hunting, Pinochet and hereditary peers, the uneatable, the unspeakable and the unelectable. This was a rare and quickly regretted Blair incursion into the language of leftism. He never much cared about hunting one way or another, and wished the issue would vanish. It did not. John Prescott, more of a class warrior than his leader, enlivened the 2001 election when a burly countryside protester threw an egg at him during a visit to Rill, Wales, and was rewarded with a hefty punch. After the election, Labour MPs pressed ahead, while on the other side, vigils were mounted, topless women delivered petitions to Whitehall, and a thousand horses rode through Leicester as part of a summer of discontent in 2002. That September, the Alliance claimed more than 400,000 supporters in its biggest liberty and livelihood protest outside the Commons, a protest which saw violent confrontations between the police and angry young men in tweed caps and waxed olive jackets. On the 18th of November 2004, a law banning hunting with hounds finally passed its parliamentary hurdles. After legal challenges, it became law the following February, though the many loopholes allowing riders with hounds to flush out foxes, which could then be shot, meant hunts carried on across England and Wales. The day after the ban took effect, thousands were out again, and 91 foxes were killed. There, as in Scotland, the hunts continue and SAB still follow with cameras, trying to find evidence of law-breaking. There have been very few prosecutions. Bloody predictions of masters of foxhounds shooting their dogs and then hanging themselves, a nightmare hanging over Labour spin doctors for several years, was never realised. The fox-hunting story can serve as a symbol for much else in the new Labour years, a long and noisy confrontation at Westminster, which, in the end, had surprisingly little effect on the ground. The first intimation that protest could go further under New Labour, the noisy pro-hunting demonstrations, came in 2000, when a nationwide revolt by truckers against high petrol prices brought the country to a standstill. The automatic increase in fuel duty had, in fact, been briefly halted, but rising world oil prices and the high petrol taxes already in place meant unheard-of prices at the petrol pumps. A group of irate truckers, men who owned their own lorries, held a protest meeting in Wales and decided to mount a brief blockade of a giant oil refinery in Cheshire. They attracted widespread news coverage and an enthusiastic reaction from ordinary drivers. To begin with, Blair and his ministers concluded that it was not a serious challenge and continued with their plans. 
A command centre was established at Cobra, the bland meeting room below Downing Street from where national crises are directed. The Prime Minister himself went ahead with a tour of the English Midlands, due to end with a celebration of John Prescott's 30 years in Parliament in a Hull Chinese restaurant. On the way, officials and journalists noted V formations of slow-moving lorries blocking motorways in other parts of the country and followed reports of petrol stations in the north of England running dry or being besieged by queues of panicky motorists. More refineries were blockaded. Still, Blair and his team insisted that nothing was really wrong and the tour would go on. He would not be diverted. By that evening, with Prescott in a Hull town hall surrounded by countryside protesters, he was getting a different message. Told that he could not be guaranteed a getaway from the splendid Chinese restaurant, he apologised to his deputy and headed for Sheffield, still insisting the show would go on. On the following morning, after overnight briefings, he gave in, turned tail and sped back to London to take charge. Blair was generally good in a crisis and began trying to knock heads together. But this time the oil company bosses would not help him by ordering drivers of petrol tankers, who were both self-employed and sympathetic to the fuel protesters, to break through the pickets. Blair raged, threatened and begged. Now, all across Britain, petrol stations ran dry. Wherever petrol remained, vast queues formed. It was all perfectly good-humoured, but the crisis was spinning out of Blair's hands. Food shortages were reported. Bread was going. Milk was going, and the nation's egg-laying chickens were in danger. What was left of Britain's manufacturing industry was close to being forced to suspend working. Yet all tests of public opinion showed the majority of the country was with the protesters, not the government. Brown repeatedly refused to pre-announce his March budget by promising cuts in fuel taxes, in response to blackmail by 2,000 to 3,000 hauliers. There was private talk of bringing in the army, forcing the blockades. Panicky-sounding government papers were leaked, and Blair came close to begging the protesters to stop. This is not on, you know. This is just not right. Eventually, after health service managers had warned that people would soon die, and with even the anti-Blair press telling the protesters that enough was enough, the blockades were lifted, and life returned to normal. Brown made a crab-wise but generous enough move on petrol duty in his budget, and something close to honour was restored. Yet. Britain had come very close to the kind of collapse not seen since the winter of 1978-79. to 79. The country quickly bounced back. There was no threatening undertow in the 2001 election. The combination of early prudence and the public spending promised had played well with the electorate. John Major was succeeded as party leader by the most talented Tory of his generation, the young, bright, bald and witty Yorkshireman William Hague a natural Thatcherite since his school days, and a political obsessive. He had done his best to make his leadership seem trendier and more in touch with modern Britain, donning a baseball cap and visiting the Notting Hill Carnival. He was mocked for it and learned. Haig was a man of some political experience, having been with Norman Lamont at the Treasury, and later Welsh Secretary, and his greatest achievement was that he stopped a bewildered and defeated party tearing itself apart. At his best in the Commons, he had been a sparkling opposition leader, discomforting Blair and leading the charge on Labour's stealth taxes, the Dome and the new issue of bogus asylum seekers. But heavily concentrating his election campaign on saving the pound, promising voters, we will get you back your country, 
and attacking the still popular Blair as a slimy liar, he allowed New Labour to portray his party as xenophobic and nasty. By any standard, the Tory attack failed. Labour was returned with a majority of 166, having lost just six seats net, and the Conservatives, after all their energy and hard work, managed a single net gain. It was an important election because it cemented the new Labour achievement of 1997 and showed the country had moved towards Blair's agenda. Yet this general election will be remembered for one other ominous statistic too. The turnout was just below 60%. Since Britain had first become a democracy, the public had never been less interested in voting. Pre-Iraq Wars and Foreign Policy The Iraq War will remain forever the most important and controversial part of Tony Blair's legacy. But long before it, during the dog days of the Clinton administration, Two events had taken place which primed his response and explained some of what followed. The first was the bombing of Iraq by the RAF and US Air Force as punishment for Saddam Hussein's dodging of UN inspections. The second was the bombing of Serbia during the Kosovo crisis and the threat of a ground force invasion. These crises made Blair believe he had to be involved personally and directly in overseas wars. They caused dark nights of self-doubt and toughened him to criticism. They emphasised the limitations of air power and the importance to him of media management. Without them, Blair's reaction to the changing of world politics on September the 11th, 2001, would have been different. Evidence of Saddam Hussein's interest in weapons of mass destruction was shown to Blair soon after he took office. He raised it in speeches and privately with other leaders. Most countries in NATO and at the United Nations Security Council were angry about the dictator's expulsion of UN inspectors when they tried to probe his huge palace compounds for biological and chemical weapons. But the initial instinct was for more diplomacy. Iraq was suffering from sanctions already. Saddam eventually allowed the inspectors back. He was playing cat and mouse, however, and in October 1998, Britain and the United States finally lost patience and decided to smash Iraq's military establishment with missiles and bombing raids. In a foretaste of things to come, Blair even presented MPs with a dossier about Saddam's weapons of mass destruction. Again, at the last minute, the Iraqi leader backed down and the raids were postponed. The United States soon concluded this was another trick, and, in December, British and American planes attacked, hitting 250 targets over four days. Operation Desert Fox, as they called it, probably only delayed Saddam's weapons programs by a year or so, though it was sold as a huge success. As later, Britain and the United States were operating without a fresh UN resolution. Among their publics, there was a widespread suspicion that Clinton had ordered the raids to distract from his embarrassing Monica-gate travails. Congress was debating impeachment proceedings during the attacks and did indeed formally impeach Clinton on the final day of the raids. Over this episode, however, Blair faced little trouble in Parliament or outside it. The second bombing campaign happened as a result of the breakup of Yugoslavia in the later stages of the long Balkan tragedy that had haunted John Major's time in office. Kosovo, a province of Serbia, was dominated by Albanian-speaking Muslims, but was considered almost a holy site by history-minded Serbs, who had fought a famous medieval battle there against the Ottomans. The Serbian ex-communist leader Slobodan Milosevic had made himself the hero of the minority Kosovar Serbs. 
The Dayton Peace Agreement had calmed things down in 1995, but the newly formed Kosovo Liberation Army triggered a vicious new conflict, marked by increasingly savage Serb reprisals from 1998 to 1999. Despite the use of international monitors and a brief ceasefire, violence returned with the slaughter of 45 civilians in the town of Ratchak, provoking comparisons with Nazi crimes. Ethnic cleansing and the forced migration of tens of thousands of people across wintry mountain tracks produced uproar around the world. In Chicago, Blair declared a new Doctrine of the International Community, which allowed a just war based on values. When talks with the Yugoslavs broke down, NATO duly launched a massive bombing campaign. British and American jets attacked targets first in Kosovo and then the rest of Serbia, hitting factories, television stations, bridges, power stations, railway lines, hospitals and many government buildings. It was, however, a complete failure. Many innocent civilians were killed and daily life was disrupted across much of Serbia and Kosovo. Sixty people were killed by an American cluster bomb in a market. An allegedly stealthy US bomber blew down half the Chinese embassy in Belgrade causing a huge international row. Meanwhile, low cloud and the use of decoys by Milosevic's generals limited the military damage, and he used the attacks to increase his ethnic cleansing massively. The death squads went back to work. Hundreds of thousands of people were on the move. Eventually, roughly a million ethnic Albanians fled Kosovo, and an estimated 10,000 to 12,000 were killed. Blair began to think he might not survive as Prime Minister if nothing was done. So Downing Street staff said at the time, if they were right, the reader will notice that Mr. Blair believed he might be ousted much more often than any level-headed observer might have predicted. The real problem was that only the genuine threat of an invasion by ground troops might convince Milosevic to pull back. Air power by itself was not enough. Blair tried desperately to persuade Clinton to agree. He visited a refugee camp and angrily said, This is obscene. It's criminal. How can anyone think we shouldn't intervene? It would be the Americans whose troops would bear the brunt of a new war, since the European Union was far away from any coherent military structure and lacked the basic tools for carrying armies to other theatres. There was alarm in Washington about the British Prime Minister's moral posturing, and it was only after many weeks of shuttle diplomacy that things began to move. Blair ordered that 50,000 British soldiers, most of the available army, should be made available to invade Kosovo. This would mean a huge call-up of reserves, and if it was a bluff, was one on a massive scale, since other European countries had no intention of taking part. For whatever reason, the Americans began to toughen their language, and finally, at the last minute, the Serb Parliament buckled. The Americans and Russians worked together to apply pressure, and Milosevic withdrew his forces from Kosovo and accepted its virtual independence, under an international mandate. Blair declared a kind of victory. Good had triumphed over evil, civilization over barbarism. Eight months later, Milosevic was toppled from power and ended up in The Hague charged with war crimes. First Desert Fox and then Kosovo are vital in appreciating Blair's behavior when it came to the full-scale Iraq war. They taught him that bombing rarely works. They suggested that, threatened with ground invasion by superior forces, dictators will back down. They played to his sense of himself as a moral war leader, combating dictators as wicked in their way as Hitler, something that was underpinned by the successful life-saving intervention in Sierra Leone in 2000. After working well with Clinton over Desert Fox, 
He worried that he had tried to bounce him too obviously over Kosovo. He learned that American presidents need tactful handling. He learned not to rely on Britain's European allies very much, though he pressed the case later for the establishment of a European rapid reaction force to shoulder more of the burden in future wars. He learned to ignore criticism from the left and right, which became deafening during the Kosovo bombing. He learned to cope with giving orders which resulted in much loss of life. He learned an abiding hostility to the media, and in particular the BBC, whose reporting of the Kosovo bombing campaign infuriated him. The Irish peace process had convinced him of his potency as a dealmaker. Desert Fox, Kosovo and Sierra Leone convinced him of his ability to lead in war, to take big gambles and to get them right. Dubya Most of those around the Prime Minister, certainly including his wife, had hoped that the Democrats' Al Gore would win the 2000 presidential election. Blair himself had been careful to open up early lines of communication to George W. Bush, sending diplomats to his ranch and passing a friendly message to the Texan governor via his father, ahead of the election campaign. His first phone conversation with the new president had been friendly enough, but Blair was uneasy. With reason. He had enjoyed extraordinarily close relations with Clinton, an intellectual romance with the charismatic reshaper of democratic politics which had survived their disagreements and the embarrassment of the Lewinsky affair. Bush had been elected to wipe away all that. Blair's first visit to see Bush at Camp David in February 2001 has been remembered for an uneasy photo-opportunity stroll when Blair was wearing embarrassingly tight jeans and for Bush's awkward joke that the two of them did agree about issues, they both used the same brand of toothpaste, Colgate. Away from the cameras, however, something more significant had happened. The two had established a relaxed private relationship which would grow into one of mutual trust, close enough to be controversial right around the world. Blair agreed to back Bush's proposed new US missile defence system, opposed by most European leaders and most Labour Party people. He would allow the upgrading of sites in Britain necessary to make it work. Bush, in turn, grudgingly agreed to support the latest British-French defence initiative to create a rapid reaction force in case of future Kosovos. More important than this bargain, though, was the chemistry. Blair's aides were almost starstruck by the quality of Bush's team, particularly Condoleezza Rice, Donald Rumsfeld and Colin Powell. Blair found the new president clear, businesslike, brisk and easy to do business with, rather easier, in fact, than the loquacious, undisciplined Clinton. Even Cherie Blair, who had arrived on the plane still asking crossly why they had to be nice to these people, did her best to get on with Laura. Those who have not met him underrate Bush's instinctive skill with people and his ability to dominate a room. Kosovo had already taught Blair the importance of sticking with the US president if he wanted to fight moral conflicts. Clinton himself had told Blair to make Bush your best friend. Blair decided he liked Bush, but then did he have any choice, and rebuked anyone from then on who described the US president as stupid or badly informed. Relations between a US president and a British prime minister can never be between equals, but the groundwork had been done. At the time, it all seemed rather humdrum. The consequences would be awesome. From New York to Kabul When the Al-Qaeda attack on New York and Washington took place, Blair was on the point of addressing the TUC in Brighton about his public sector reforms. It seemed an important speech. 
Campbell had been briefing journalists that he would confront the dinosaur instincts of the unions. It would be a belter and highly dramatic. Just then, the 24-hour news channels, which had become a feature in every ministerial office and wherever journalists gathered, began showing repeated film of a burning building. As speculation spread about some dreadful accident involving a light plane, the second tower was hit. Blair reacted to the news like everyone else, with disbelief. He was quickly advised that this was a terrorist attack on an unprecedented scale. Whatever his failures of analysis, Blair is very fast on his feet, and, as Diana's death had shown, quick to find words for moments of drama and grief. Inside the TUC there had been scenes of farce as journalists and others began taking phone calls and leaving the room. Its president rebuked them and called for order, only to find ripples of horror and speculation all round. When Blair arrived he said he was cancelling his speech, briefly described what had happened, expressed his great sympathy and support for America, and sped back to London by train with his advisers. There he found little preparation to defend the capital from a similar attack, which might be imminent. The airspace over London was closed, RAF jets were sent up on patrol, and the thinking began in the secure basement below Downing Street. Throughout the crisis, Blair would work more closely with his military and intelligence advisers than he would with his ministers. He found he could not reach Bush by phone for more than 24 hours, and there was a flurry of anxiety in London that the President had panicked or gone AWOL. But as soon as contact was made with Bush at lunchtime on the 12th of September, Blair was able to present not only his sympathy, but also his hastily gathered briefing and thoughts about Osama bin Laden. The two resumed their mutually admiring partnership, emotionally charged by what had happened. This was the time when American flags fluttered across London. The band outside Buckingham Palace played the star-spangled banner. A carpet of flowers appeared outside the U.S. Embassy, and the last night of the proms became an act of solidarity with New York. Not since 1945 had America been as popular in Britain. By phone, Bush had promised that he was not going to act precipitously, pounding sand, but told Blair he would make no distinction between the terrorists and those who harboured them. This implied first an ultimatum to the Taliban in Afghanistan, and then a war. Blair agreed and made clear to the Commons soon afterwards that he believed the rules had changed, and that rogue states harbouring terrorists who might use chemical, nuclear or biological weapons now had to choose whose side they were on. This emphatically did not mean that Iraq was to be attacked, certainly not by Number 10's reckoning. We now know that at Camp David, four days after the September the 11th attacks, Bush was advised by Donald Rumsfeld, his Defence Secretary, that he had an opportunity to attack Iraq, but decided, for then, to concentrate on Afghanistan. Nine days after the attack, in the midst of a frenzy of diplomacy, talking to the Germans, French, Chinese and Iranians, Blair went to pay tribute to the victims of what was already being called 9-11, struggling through torrential rain to the still-smoking ruins of Ground Zero and making an emotional cathedral oration for the British dead. In Washington, afterwards, Bush told him that Iraq was for another day. Then, in his speech to Congress, laying out America's new War on Terror, Bush warned that he would start with Al-Qaeda, but not end there. Another reference to Iraq. He also publicly praised Blair for showing such solidarity, turning to him theatrically and saying, Thank you for coming, friend. Congress rose to give Blair an ovation. Blair was using all his political capital and the accumulated knowledge of the Foreign Office to help the United States, beyond the commitment of any other country, 
and was receiving the emotional thanks of a president who now divided the rest of the world into friends and enemies. It was a high point of British prestige in America, certainly on a par with the Reagan-Thatcher age. Whether the mutual affection was truly influential is a moot point. For now, it encouraged the Americans to involve other countries in the attack on Afghanistan. The strikes on the Taliban were launched less than a month after September the 11th, beginning with British submarines' cruise missiles and heavy bombing by US aircraft. Immensely destructive weaponry was dropped on Al-Qaeda training camps and Taliban defenders, including the notorious Daisy Cutter bombs. On the ground, the war was conducted by the Northern Alliance and Afghan warlords, paid and supplied by the Americans and aided by special forces. This was a war of the 21st century against the 19th, and it was over quickly, Kabul being deserted by the Taliban just five weeks after it had begun. The several thousand remaining Al-Qaeda Arab fighters and their Taliban hosts retreated to a cave complex near the Pakistan border at Tora Bora, where even the Americans were unable to dislodge and capture all of them. Bin Laden, after calling for a war by the Muslim world against the West, disappeared. Throughout this, Blair had continued his diplomacy, helping win Pakistan round to the American cause and protesting to a wide range of Arab and Muslim leaders that the conflict was emphatically not aimed at Islam. In Oman, Egypt, Syria and Palestine, he and his aides assured everyone who would listen that there would be no further war against Iraq unless evidence was uncovered of a link between al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein. Meanwhile, Blair's attempts to bring the other main European leaders nearer to close support for President Bush and to kick-start a new phase of the peace process between Israel and her neighbours were largely unsuccessful. During these weeks of frantic activity, Blair was trying to build support for the new War on Terror, but also to begin to give substance to his remarkable speech at Labour's conference in October, when he suggested the ills of the globe could be addressed in the aftermath of September the 11th. It remains the single most important speech he made, and the best reference point for his failures and successes as a foreign affairs prime minister. Though advisers contributed key phrases, the thrust of the speech was his own, the product of the Christian moralism he had developed as an Oxford student, a growing belief in his personal ability as a global leader, and a hot concentration of excited thinking, utterly unlike his vaguer grasp of domestic policy. The Twin Towers attack had simply been a turning point in world history, he told his party. After movingly describing the aftermath in New York, he tied war-making and aid-giving together, as Bush certainly would not have done. Defeat the terrorists, was his message, and then deal with the refugees. Take on poverty, and the terrorism would drain away. From the slums of Gaza to Africa itself, which he was already describing as a scar on the conscience of the world, a new world could be made. From out of the shadow of this evil should emerge lasting good. Destruction of the machinery of terrorism wherever it is found. Hope amongst all nations of a new beginning where we seek to resolve differences in a calm and ordered way. Greater understanding between nations and between faiths. And above all, justice and prosperity for the poor and dispossessed. Some laughed in disbelief. Others felt their eyes missed and their hearts beat faster. Blair was in some areas specific. He promised to make the Middle East peace process a personal priority from now on. But mostly he was visionary. The starving, the wretched, the dispossessed, the ignorant could be saved. This is the moment to seize. The kaleidoscope has been shaken. The pieces are in flux. Soon they will settle again. Before they do, let us reorder the world around us.
It was an undeniably powerful act of rhetoric. But was Blair already reaching too far, allowing the intoxicating moral certainty of the hour to persuade him that he could play a messianic role round the world, part Gladstone, part Gandhi? Iraq was the bloody rock which would shatter these hopes, though Blair pursued his aims doggedly in Israel and Africa too. The Joy of Trivia Throughout the Blair years, Alistair Campbell would berate journalists for their tiny-minded obsession with trivia rather than substance. By trivia, he meant a series of scandals involving ministers and money, or, less often, ministers and sex. Resignations from government punctuated the Blair years. Perhaps the most single damaging thing Tony Blair ever said was this, We are on the side of ordinary people against privilege. We must be purer than pure. There were few instances of personal corruption, but in trying to raise money for politics without going cap in hand to the trade unions, the Blair Circle became deeply enmeshed with business and privilege, a world where favours were exchanged without anything explicit necessarily being said. The Blairs themselves enjoyed luxurious surroundings and the company of wealthy people. And after the huge endorsement of the 1997 election, lacking any restraint from a threatening opposition party, a certain swagger was soon apparent among the inner circle. From the word go, New Labour's high command, nose in the air, eyes a-glitter with opportunity, was riding for a fall. The Bernie Eccleston affair of 1997, when the diminutive owner of Formula One racing around the world won an exemption from a tobacco advertising ban for his sport after giving a £1 million donation to Labour, was the first rebuke to purer than pure. In opposition, Blair had been driven round the Silverstone racing circuit as the crowd waved Union Jacks at him. The two men were acquaintances. The suggested link between a let-out clause in government policy for motor racing and Eccleston's personal influence on him was hotly denied by Blair in public. Behind the scenes, he and his advisers knew how it looked. There was panic. Though nobody could finally prove wrongdoing, lies were told as Number 10 tried to cover up the detail of the story. On Campbell's advice, Blair allowed himself to be interviewed by the BBC's premier attack dog interviewer, John Humphreys, to whom he made a lame half-apology and appealed to viewers, I hope that people know me well enough and realise the type of person I am, to realise I would never do anything to harm the country or anything improper. I think that most people who have dealt with me think that I am a pretty straight sort of guy. Blair got away with it at the time, just about, but a dangerous impression had been left that the fresh-faced new administration, which had so vigorously attacked Tory Slees, was not quite as clean-handed as it had seemed. If Blair could still play his public reputation for niceness, the same could not, in all fairness, be said of Peter Mandelson. He had revelled in his reputation as the sinister minister, the all-seeing, omnipresent Machiavelli of New Britain. He could be stagey, camp, bullying, charming, and for a man supposed to swirl around in the dark, was rather touchingly attracted by the spotlight. It was said that his arrival in a restaurant could turn soup to ice as he passed enemies, while he could raise an ally's blood temperature with just the flicker of a smile. He was less efficient than overwrought enemies thought him. As a dark manipulator, he had his Inspector Clouseau moments. Yet, in the early days of New Labour, Mandelson and the people around him felt they were masters of the universe. One of his aides, Derek Draper, boasted darkly to someone working undercover for a newspaper about the circle. There were, he said, no doubt tapping the side of his nose, only seventeen people who count.
Perhaps the Mandelson Circle was sending itself up just a little, but it was setting itself up too. Mandelson himself had a strongly developed taste for good living, and had borrowed three hundred and seventy-three thousand pounds to buy a house before the election from Geoffrey Robinson, a cheery MP and supporter of Gordon Brown's. Robinson had a fortune secreted offshore in a Channel Island tax haven, money from a long business career, and also from the bequest of a Belgian widow, happily called Madame Bourgeois. In government, he became paymaster general, and in due course, Mandelson became secretary of state for trade and industry. The job, which meant he was in overall charge of investigations into, among others, one Geoffrey Robinson, the man to whom he was indebted for his West End home. There was an obvious conflict of interest. Mandelson tried to deflect inquiries about where he had got the money, suggesting it came from his mother. But the Brown camp both loathed him and knew the truth, so it was bound to come out. When it did so, Blair was furious. Not least because his close friend Peter had said nothing to warn him, nor had any of his staff. After a tearful scene with two Downing Street press officers and Blair off stage looking cross, Mandelson agreed that he would have to resign. The Prime Minister, though determined to see him go, then had him and his partner to stay at Checkers and gave him advice about rebuilding his life and the art of making friends. Characteristically, Mandelson's sad but noble letter of resignation and Blair's memorably moving reply were both written by Alastair Campbell. Then Robinson went too. So, in due course, did Charlie Whelan, Brown's press officer, and the man blamed by Mandelson for revealing the story of his loan. Had that been all, it would have been bad enough. The mantra was established that nothing wrong had been done, but because of the appearance of wrongdoing, resignation was called for. But there followed a roll call of scandals, all different in their detail, together devastating in their effect. Blair was accused of lying when he denied knowledge of any connection between a labour donation made by Lakshmi Mittal, an Indian businessman, and his help for Mittal in trying to buy a Romanian steel company. Mandelson returned to government just ten months after his resignation and threw himself into the new job of Northern Ireland secretary. Then came questions about whether two Indian businessmen who had helped fund the dome had tried to obtain British citizenship via Mandelson. He was later cleared of wrongdoing. But had to resign again. After Blair again showed himself entirely steely about this, Mandelson, who eventually turned up again as Britain's commissioner in Brussels, felt badly betrayed. Connections between ministers and business people who know the form and protect one another by never explicitly asking or offering depend on a shared culture. It is interesting that so many of the rows that broke surface concerned Asian business people. They did not know the form. They could speak English. But not unspoken English. For the same cabinet minister to have to resign twice within a year was unheard of. But in the Blair years, twice happened twice. David Blunkett, the blind, tough-talking former leader of Sheffield Council, who had been Blair's enforcer in education, had to resign as Home Secretary in 2004 after a row over whether he had asked his private office to fast-track a visa application for his lover Kimberly Quinn's nanny. He had not exactly rallied colleagues to his side by confiding in a journalist his derisive views on much of the rest of the cabinet. Julie published in a biography to his embarrassment and their fury. Press interest in the Nannygate story was whipped to fever pitch by Quinn's role as well-known publisher of the Tory-supporting Spectator magazine, 
and the revelation that she had had a child by him. Even Blunkett described it as the tale of the socialite and the socialist. There followed a bitter custody battle between Quinn, supported by her long-suffering husband, and the increasingly agitated Blunkett. It was a story from the wilder years of the 18th century, and was used as the subject of a musical, which hurt Blunkett very much, as well as a television drama. He was brought back into government after the 2005 election as Work and Pensions Secretary, but had to resign again after a row over shares in a DNA testing company he had purchased while out of the government. His taped diaries, which were published in 2006, then revealed divisions at the heart of government before the Iraq War, his coruscating views on senior civil servants, and implied that Blair had considered sacking Brown if he failed to properly support him over it. The Blunkett and Mandelson doubles were the most celebrated resignations of the Blair years, but were only part of the story. Ron Davies, the Welsh secretary, went after a moment of madness, involving another man on Clapham Common. Estelle Morris, education secretary, went after a moment of sanity. Thoroughly honourably, she decided she was not up to the job. There were the Iraq resignations, first of Robin Cook, then Claire Short, the loss of a badly bruised Lord Irvin of Laird as Lord Chancellor after Blair overruled him on constitutional reform, and the departure of Alan Milburn, Health Secretary, to spend more time with his family. Stephen Byers, a former hard leftist from the northeast of England, had been one of Blair's most trusted and loyal ministers. He was badly damaged when his special adviser Joe Moore callously emailed colleagues telling them 9-11 was a good day to bury bad news not the most sensitive response to the murder of thousands. Then, as Transport Secretary, Byers ignited a huge row when he forced Railtrack into liquidation and took control of it back without paying the compensation to its shareholders that straightforward nationalisation would have entitled them to. They felt robbed and cheated, though Labour MPs were delighted. Byers was attacked for lying to Parliament about this and about what he said to a meeting of survivors of the horrific Paddington train disaster about the railway's future. He resigned in May 2002. The dirty tide washed through number 10, too. Blair and his wife Cherie had been the butt of many attacks for the gusto with which they enjoyed free holidays at the expense of rich friends. Geoffrey Robinson, an Italian prince, Cliff Richard, a BG, and, briefly, Silvio Berlusconi, the scandal-mired Prime Minister of Italy. Cherie had been criticised frequently for freeloading more generally. Though a high-paid lawyer, she was unreasonably frightened of not having enough money, which presumably dated from her insecure childhood. The Blairs were less wealthy than the Thatchers, though not in office the Majors or the Wilsons or the Callahans, and had failed to capitalise on the house price boom when they sold their private North London home. Yet they and their children were looked after in two homes paid for by the state, and he was well paid by the standards of ordinary Britain. Not rich, only by the standards of millennial London high society. The family was comfortable. And as soon as Blair resigned, he knew that through book deals, speaking fees and corporate work, he could become rich beyond the dreams of avarice. None of this seemed to cut much ice. Carol Kaplan, a health and beauty trainer, had known Cherie Blair from the 90s, but became more influential with her after Labour won power. Disliked by Number 10 officials, who regarded her as manipulative, and her New Age views as balmy, Kaplan nevertheless helped Mrs. Blair develop a style and self-confidence she felt she had not had before. Particularly after her pregnancy with Leo, and then a later miscarriage, a close feminine bond was established. 
with Blair constantly distracted by the war on terror and domestic politics, Cherie took it more upon herself to organise family plans, including financial plans. Through Kaplan, she arranged to buy two flats in Bristol, where her son Ewan was at university, one for him and one as an investment. The deal was negotiated by Kaplan's lover, a pantomime Australian rogue and fraudster called Peter Foster. When the story broke, Cherie Blair failed to tell Campbell the full truth. Nor did she tell Fiona Miller, Campbell's partner, who had been Cherie's spokeswoman, and who loathed Kaplan. Nor, it seems, did her husband know the complete story either. As a result, Number 10 misled the press when stories in the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday were put to them, and were later forced to apologise. Stormy scenes erupted inside Downing Street when the link from Blair to a conman via Cherie and Kaplan was finally established. It was a very bleak moment for the couple, and media anger was only partially assuaged when, at Campbell's insistence, Cherie made a live televised apology, blaming her busy life and maternal pressure for what had happened. Some applauded her for a courageous performance and a life of difficult juggling. Others were unconvinced. Britain had not become a corrupt country, but a sense of letdown, betrayal, or perhaps just weary disappointment was felt by millions who had hoped for better. Why had Blair and his associates failed to show themselves purer than pure? First, by deciding to live with a system of business donations to help fund politics, they opened themselves to influence peddling. Blair always replied that he had set up rules for the disclosure of party donations, and the tightest ever code for ministerial behaviour. This was true, yet there always seemed to be another loophole and another set of questions. By the end of his time in office, his fundraiser, Lord Levy, had been arrested in a Loans for Peerages investigation, and he was facing police questioning himself. Second, the growth of a super-rich class of business people in London in the two decades after the Big Bang gave some politicians a wholly unrealistic measurement of how people like us live. Many did not fall for it. Brown did not. Most ministers went home to their constituencies and found themselves walking again on solid ground. But the temptation to think, I run the country, or part of the country, don't I deserve better, was always present. Britain seemed to have become a society which measured success merely by money, rather than by public esteem. Finally, the way politicians were really monitored had changed. It was not the smooth expressions of warning from civil servants they had to worry about, or even tough questions from fellow MPs. A self-appointed, lively, impertinent, and at times savage opposition did the job instead. A class of people courted by ministers and then despised by them. The media. After brilliantly using journalism to help discredit the Conservatives, Blair and his colleagues were themselves about to feel the rough edge of a rough trade. Into the Furnace Blair's biographer, Anthony Selden, rightly emphasises how worried Blair was about Saddam Hussein and weapons of mass destruction long before Bush became president or decided to launch his war. This was not simply something Blair worried about privately, he spoke of it again and again. He was particularly worried about a nuclear-enhanced dirty bomb being used by Iraqi-supported terrorists. By now, his earlier experiences of Saddam and Milosevic, and to a lesser extent Mullah Omar of the Taliban, as well as his personal contact with leaders he liked, such as Bush and Russia's Vladimir Putin, meant that for Blair, foreign affairs was personal. 
By focusing so fully on Saddam as a man of evil and the moral case for dealing with him, he did not focus enough on the complexities of Iraq, the country. The hardening of views inside the White House which finally led to the decision to invade Iraq are not part of this story. In Bush's State of the Union speech for 2002, he had listed Iraq, Iran and North Korea as an axis of evil, sending shivers across diplomatic Europe. Attempts by US intelligence to prove a link between the secularist Saddam and the fundamentalist Al-Qaeda failed, but this hardly halted the process of lining up Iraq as next for the Bush treatment. Blair's promises to Arab leaders about proof had no purchase in Washington. There were philosophical links between Blair's Gladstonian speech to the Labour Party and the neoconservatives around Bush, many of whom believed that by toppling Saddam they would bring an age of democracy and prosperity to the Middle East, solving the Palestinian problem along the way. But the dominant group around Bush were not keen on grand visions. They believed first and second in toppling Saddam. They did not believe in waiting for or depending upon other countries, even Britain. After 9-11, this was America's war. They did not believe in UN inspectors or promises by Baghdad. Above all, the hopes of some of the more intellectual US officials and of Britain's Foreign Office for a detailed plan for the reconstruction of post-war Iraq would be dashed by the Hawks, Cheney and Rumsfeld at their head. Regime change meant regime change. It did not mean promises to bring clean water and food to foreigners by democratic missionaries. From the time when he visited Bush at his dusty Texan ranch at Crawford near Waco in April 2002, Blair knew he intended to invade Iraq. That did not end the matter since Blair spent much of the rest of the year arguing that Bush should go via the United Nations. Without this, under British interpretations of international law, the invasion would be illegal. The UN would also give a last chance for Saddam to disarm peacefully. Keeping the international community together would make it easier to rebuild Iraq afterwards, in the spirit of Blair's conference speech. He also wanted Bush to commit to spending plenty of time on the Middle East peace process. On the 7th of September 2002, at Camp David, Blair finally got Bush's promise to go via the UN, and Bush got Blair's promise that Britain would fight alongside America in Iraq if that route failed. Bush praised Blair for having cojones, Spanish for balls. When Bush publicly confirmed his willingness to try for a UN resolution, ad-libbing in a speech to the General Assembly a few days later, Blair was delighted. But he was also locked in. He had spent his capital with Bush and won a battle with the Washington Hawks about the United Nations. But he had not persuaded anyone to take the post-war situation seriously. At the time, it looked like a good deal. It would turn out to be a rotten deal, not least because to Blair's chagrin and amazement, the United States and Britain were eventually unable to get the extra UN resolution they wanted. In the meantime, the UN route helped keep the number of Labour's Commons rebels to 56. That was still a lot. In Whitehall, the Foreign Office and many ministers were growing worried about where Blair was leading them. Outside it, the anti-war movement was mobilising. To try to win public opinion round, Blair turned to a device he had used twice before, ahead of Desert Fox and after 9-11, the publication of a dossier of facts proving the case for war. This one, though, was different. 
The American case against Saddam was that he was a bad, dangerous guy, who, in the context of the new war on terror, had to be taken out. The UN case was that he was failing to cooperate fully with weapons inspectors, leading to a suspicion that he was still hiding stocks of weapons of mass destruction, WMD, particularly chemical and biological weapons, though, to be fair, some had been destroyed. To get the resolution, it was vital to concentrate on the WMD, about which, as we have seen, Blair had long been worried. The dossier, therefore, had to show they existed. To win round British opinion, it would have to show they were threatening to Britain, too. Thus, Blair laid the central case for war not on the moral cause for removing a tyrant, but on narrow and unproven assertions about the condition of the tyrant's arsenal. Blair's team had already enjoyed some success with journalists in feeding them blood-curdling lines about the damage Saddam might wreak. There is no doubt that senior intelligence and defence people believed he had WMD, but was cleverly hiding them, and that he was trying to get nuclear weapons. The trouble was that Saddam's regime of terror was so effective that there were very few sources of information from inside Iraq. Those Britain's MI6 dealt with were untrustworthy. They were, after all, dissidents, with a strong reason to bring forward the war. Sir Richard Dearlove, the MI6 Director-General, brought Blair information from an Iraqi source who said he knew where chemical agent was being made, though the source was untried and untested. Satellite intelligence, though used by Colin Powell at the UN, was unsatisfactorily unclear. Thus the dossier had to produce information from a vague and difficult source, which was nevertheless hard-edged enough, at least at first glance, to fulfil a highly political role. It was drawn from a variety of sources, channelled through the Joint Intelligence Committee, which reported to the Prime Minister. Different texts were batted to and fro through Downing Street, as officials questioned parts of it, and wondered whether it was sufficiently convincing. Suspicions were raised also following the publication of a second dossier in February 2003 about the background to Iraq's concealment programme, which was later dubbed the Dodgy Dossier, and proved to have been lifted without attribution from a PhD thesis found on the Internet. Whatever the final truth about the shaping of the September 2002 dossier, something strange had happened. Suspicions had been hardened, assertions sharpened, doubts trimmed out, and belief converted into proof. Nobody knew for sure what Saddam had, that was the point of the UN inspection process, but when it was published, the dossier gave the impression that he had multiple weapons of mass destruction, which could be ready for use in 45 minutes, and threatened, among other places, British bases in Cyprus. The 45-minute claim turned out to refer to some short-range battlefield chemical weapons which could not reach other countries, though maps printed in the dossier confused readers about it. And when Iraq was finally invaded and exhaustive searches conducted everywhere, the weapons never turned up. For years, Blair insisted hotly that they would. He would be publicly mocked by President Putin, MPs and the world's media for this. He kept telling his critics they would be proved wrong. So far, they have not been. A tense struggle at the United Nations, with British diplomats in the lead, produced Resolution 1441, declaring that Saddam was in material breach of his obligation to show he had no banned weaponry, and giving him a last opportunity to comply or face serious consequences.
The Iraqi leader fudged and dodged, letting inspectors back in, but without offering a full declaration of his weapons. For the Americans, this was the trigger for war. For other countries, notably France, it merely meant that there should be another discussion at the Security Council about what to do. In February 2003, as British and US forces waited to attack Iraq from the south, there was a vast stop-the-war march through London. It was the biggest ever demonstration in the capital, a carnival of protest that put even the Suez protests in its shade. Blair and Jack Straw, the foreign secretary who had swallowed private doubts and resolved to loyally support his boss, with their diplomatic team, were fighting desperately to get a second UN resolution agreed, which would give full legal cover for the attack on Iraq. This was something Blair had told Bush repeatedly that he needed to be sure of holding his party together, and by implication staying in power. But President Chirac of France, angry at the behaviour of Washington's hawks and worried about the impact of the war on the Islamic world generally, suggested that France would never accept a second resolution, and it collapsed. Despite everything, the Prime Minister was left without the real UN cover he always thought he needed. For Blair and Straw, it was a low moment. For others, it was the last straw. Robin Cook, who, as the previous Foreign Secretary, had been deeply involved in Desert Fox and Kosovo, had warned the Cabinet that without a second resolution he could not support this third war. He duly resigned. For the time being, Claire Short, another Cabinet dissenter who had publicly described Blair's behaviour as reckless, stayed on. In the Commons, Cook, its former leader, then gave one of the most icily eloquent speeches heard in the Chamber in modern times. He applauded Blair and Straw for trying so hard for the second resolution, which only showed how important it had been. Many countries, not just France, had wanted more inspections before any fighting. The reality is that Britain is being asked to embark on a war without agreement in any of the international bodies of which we are a leading partner. Not NATO, not the European Union, and no, not the Security Council. The US was a superpower and could afford to go it alone, but Britain could not. Iraq probably had no weapons of mass destruction, in the ordinarily understood sense, but was in fact militarily very weak. Ironically, it is only because Iraq's military forces are so weak that we can even contemplate its invasion. We cannot base our military strategy on the assumption that Saddam is weak, and at the same time justify preemptive action on the claim that he is a threat. The British people, said Cook, possessed collective wisdom. On Iraq, I believe that the prevailing mood of the British people is sound. They do not doubt that Saddam is a brutal dictator, but they are not persuaded that he is a clear and present danger to Britain. Almost uniquely, against its hallowed traditions, the Commons loudly clapped Cook as he sat down. Blair felt he had to press ahead. Saddam had proved himself yet again untrustworthy and a liar. He had legal cover from his Attorney-General for the war, though it was hardly resounding, and disputed by other government lawyers, one of whom resigned. He had given his word to President Bush, who offered Blair the chance to pull out and send British troops in after the invasion as peacekeepers. Blair turned the offer down as dishonourable and bad for army morale. He had staked his reputation on the war and felt that if he could not carry his party, he was finished as a leader. Privately, arrangements for his resignation were set in hand. In the Commons, the ferocious political and media struggle began to win round doubters, emphasising Saddam's brutality and abuse of human rights, rather than his weaponry. A backbencher and sometime left-wing firebrand, Anne Cluid, 
made a particularly influential speech about Saddam's treatment of the Kurds and his use of torture. Eventually, after days of drama and one of his best parliamentary speeches ever, Blair won a majority of Labour MPs, though 139 rebelled. The overall Commons victory was never in doubt because of Conservative support, but Blair had been close to failing his private yardstick of being backed by at least half his MPs. With that overcome, the final barrier to war was lifted. The war began on the 20th of March 2003 with a thunderous air attack on Baghdad, described with brutal clarity in Washington as shock and awe. An early attempt by Saddam's information minister to assassinate Saddam failed. For the first weeks, calm declarations of great victories being won out in the desert by the Iraqi armed forces were broadcast almost nightly. In fact, sandstorms delayed the US advance. In Baghdad, a coalition bomb killed 57 people in a marketplace, and in Britain, anger about the war grew. Yet, while not quite the walkover the Pentagon had hoped, the invasion was over very quickly. By the 7th of April, British forces had taken Basra, having surrounded it long before, and two days later the Americans were in Baghdad, first seizing the international airport and then Saddam's famous palaces. Soon his statues were being jubilantly torn down. Before the invasion, there had been speculation about Baghdad fighting to the last, surrounded by trenches of burning oil, tank regiments and possibly artillery with chemical shells, an Arab Guttadamerung on the banks of the Tigris. By those standards, the war had been a great, one-sided military success. The war beyond the war would be something else entirely. Mediaocracy In the 80s and early 90s, Labour had been savaged by much of the press. Neil Kinnock had a terrible time. When Blair became leader, the people immediately around Kinnock at the time, Mandelson and Campbell, remembered it well. Campbell had worked for the Daily Mirror in the dirtiest, most cynical end of the newspaper market and came away thinking that most journalists were idle liars as well as biased against Labour. He was tribal and assumed the rest of the world was too. Mandelson, with a background in television, was a master of image and later of the killer briefing. So it is hardly surprising that New Labour became the most media-obsessed political party in British history. We have seen how Blair opened out to Labour's traditional enemies in the press after becoming leader, and how he exploited sleaze to destroy John Major's reputation. On the way to winning power, New Labour turned itself into a kind of perpetual media news desk, with a plan for what every political headline should say every day, an endless grid of announcements, images, soundbites and rebuttals, constantly pressing down on journalists, their editors and owners, fighting for every adjective and exclamation mark. It is now incontestable that the same way of thinking was brought into power and did terrible damage to the government's reputation and that of politics generally. Bizarrely, it was assumed that rival newspaper groups with different views about, say, law and order could be kept friendly by Blair telling them what they wanted to hear, even though they would later confer. The attempted bullying of journalists, which grew much worse when some of the scandals described above began to break, was met with increasing resistance. Number 10's news machine began to be widely disbelieved. The word spin was attached to almost everything it said. Diaries published by one of the former Downing Street spin doctors, Lance Price, show how justified this suspicion was. On the first Mandelson resignation, he notes, We said quite falsely that Peter had rung TB last night and said he wanted to resign. 
of a Sunday newspaper interview which Blair had given calling for a new moral purpose, Price says, It was totally vacuous and was made up just to give us a good story after two twelve-year-old girls were found to have got themselves pregnant. But it worked. There are many other examples. Some, collected by the journalist Peter Oborn, include the smearing of Chris Patton, the former Tory chairman and Hong Kong governor for leaking intelligence reports, a false trail to deflect attention from the breakup of Robin Cook's marriage, the assertion by Peter Mandelson that the Dome would feature an exciting new game called Surfball, which never existed, and Blair's own deceptions, such as over Mandelson's own plans to become an MP. While there are exceptional circumstances in which political leaders have to deceive, such as when soldiers' lives would be at risk from disclosure, or when a currency was about to be devalued, journalists came to believe the currency of truth was now devalued. Anything asserted by Number 10, and later Blair himself, was picked over in minute semantic detail. Worryingly often, the picking over turned out to be justified. The non-denial denial became an essential phrase in reporting new labour. At election time, statistics were twisted even beyond the normal elastic rules of political debate. There was a spiral downwards. Journalists grew more aggressive in their assertions and began consigning the disbelieved official denials to the final paragraph of their stories. Some ministers drew the conclusion that the press was so hostile it was legitimate to use any trick or form of words to mislead them. Others complained that every time they were frank, their words were twisted and used against them. Why bother? Before long, a government which had arrived in office supported by almost all the national papers was being attacked daily by almost all of them. And the papers themselves were selling fewer copies. Ultimately, cynicism is boring. The most infamous confrontation between New Labour and the media, however, was not with a newspaper, but with a broadcaster. One of the domestic consequences of the Iraq war was the worst falling out between the BBC and the government since the Suez Crisis. At issue was whether or not officials in Number 10 had sexed up that dossier about Iraq's alleged weapons of mass destruction. As previously described, the dossier blended two cultures, the cautious, secretive, nuanced culture of intelligence gathering for internal government purposes and the spin doctor's culture of opinion forming, in this case to win more of the public over to back a coming war. But the cultures did not blend. They curdled. At seven minutes after six, one morning at the end of May 2003, Radio 4's Today programme broadcast an interview between its presenter John Humphreys and its defence correspondent, a dishevelled digger of a journalist called Andrew Gilligan. He alleged that Downing Street had sexed up the dossier beyond what intelligence sources thought was reasonable, particularly in saying that weapons of mass destruction could be ready for use within 45 minutes. Campbell quickly and unequivocally denied the truth of Gilligan's assertion and demanded an apology. Gilligan went further in an article for a newspaper in which he named Campbell. As Iraq burned, Number 10 and the BBC began a war of their own. In general, battles between journalists and politicians do not spill real blood. There is bitterness, there may be resignations, but when the smoke clears, everyone gets up again and goes back to work. When Campbell widened his criticism of the BBC to attack it for having an anti-war agenda, he had no idea quite what he was setting off. Yet there was a certain recklessness in his mood. He confided to his diary that he wanted to fuck Gilligan and wanted a clear win against the corporation. On the BBC side, it would turn out that Gilligan had been loose with his words, claiming rather more than he knew for sure, 
so opening a flank to Campbell. Nor was Gilligan frank with his colleagues. The BBC's Director-General, Greg Dyke, who had been hounded in the press as a Blair crony, was ferociously robust in defending the corporation against Campbell and was strongly supported by his chairman, Gavin Davies, whose wife was Gordon Brown's senior aide. He too was determined to demonstrate his independence. Neither side gave way until eventually it was revealed that a government scientist with a high reputation as an arms inspector, Dr David Kelly, was probably the source of Gilligan's information. Downing Street did not name him, but allowed journalists to keep throwing names at them until they confirmed who he was. A bizarre game. Because he was not involved directly in the Joint Intelligence Committee or its work, outing Kelly as the secret mole would, in the government's eyes, discredit the BBC story. Suddenly thrown into the cauldron of a media row, Kelly himself was evasive when aggressively questioned by a committee of MPs. Visibly nervous, he denied that he could have been Gilligan's informant. Yet he was. A fastidious, serious-minded man who had supported the toppling of Saddam and had served his country honourably as a weapons inspector, Kelly seemed to have cracked under the strain. On a quiet July morning in 2003, he walked five miles to the edge of a wood near his Oxfordshire home, where he took painkillers, opened up a penknife, and killed himself. This media battle had drawn blood in the most awful way. Blair, arriving in Tokyo after triumphantly addressing both houses of Congress about the fall of Saddam, was asked, Prime Minister, do you have blood on your hands? He looked as if he was about to be sick. Back home, he ordered an inquiry under a judge, Lord Hutton, which engaged the minute attention of the world of politics through the autumn of 2003. Much was revealed about Blair's informal, sloppily recorded and cliquish style of governing, and the involvement of his political staff in discussion which led to the final dossier. But with the head of the JIC and other officials insisting they had not been lent on, or obliged to say anything they did not believe, and a very strong public performance by Blair, Lord Hutton concluded Gilligan's assertion that the government knew its 45-minute claim was wrong was unfounded. The Intelligence Committee might have subconsciously been persuaded to strengthen its language because they knew what the Prime Minister wished the effect of the dossier to be, but it was consistent with the intelligence at the time. Hutton decided that Kelly had probably killed himself because of a loss of self-esteem and the threat to his reputation, but that nobody else was to blame. There was a strongly held private belief among some doctors and journalists that Kelly had been murdered, but so far not a shred of hard evidence has come to light. Hutton attacked the BBC's editorial controls. His findings had been leaked a day early to Rupert Murdoch's Sun newspaper, which robustly set the political mood. Victory for Blair, humiliation for the BBC. With Blair defiant and claiming complete vindication in the Commons, both Dyke and Davies resigned, almost immediately. Distraught employees walked out from their offices to cheer them as they left. The corporation had suffered its worst day ever, Yet the stakes were high on both sides. Had Hutton found against a Prime Minister, it would have been Blair being applauded by his tearful staff as he walked into retirement. Feeling vindicated and as aggressive as ever about the quality of journalism, Campbell then left Downing Street. Blair had concluded that the age of spin had done them all far more harm than good. It was time, despite his personal debt to Campbell, for a new broom. A widely trusted and traditionalist press officer who had worked for Roy Hattersley, called David Hill, was appointed. Slowly, painfully, both the BBC and Number 10 moved on, 
although there was plenty of trouble still ahead. By his last couple of years in office, Blair had come to realise that the frantic headline chasing and rebuttal of the early years had merely helped stoke a mood of cynicism in the press. The habits of truth-shaving, subtle deception and syntactical evasion, which had once seemed magnificently clever, had done more harm than any brief newspaper victories they might have achieved. After Iraq, one of the most common jibes made about him was simply Blyer. For a Prime Minister who, in his early days, had been able to say that most people thought him a pretty straight kind of guy, it was a terrible come-down. Always with us? Through the new Labour years, with low inflation and steady growth, most of the country grew richer. Growth, since 1997, at 2.8% a year, was above the post-war average. Britain's gross domestic product per head was above that of France and Germany, and she had the second lowest jobless figures in the EU. The number of people in work increased by 2.4 million. Incomes grew, in real terms, by about a fifth. Pensions were in trouble, but house price inflation soared, so that homeowners found their properties more than doubling in value and came to think themselves prosperous indeed. One study showed that Britain had a higher proportion of dollar millionaires than any other country. Family budgets are by definition tricky things to generalise about, but by 2006, analysts were assessing the disposable wealth of the British, defined by the consultant's KDP as the money people can really put their hands on if necessary, at £40,000 per household. The wealth was not evenly spread geographically, averaging £68,000 in the south-east of England and a little over £30,000 in Wales and north-east England. But even in historically poorer parts of the UK, house prices had risen fast, so much so that government plans to bulldoze worthless northern terraces had to be abandoned when they started to become worth quite a lot. Cheap mortgages, easy borrowing and high property prices meant that millions of people felt far better off, despite the overall rise in the tax burden. Cheap air travel, which had first arrived in the 70s with Freddie Laker, gave the British opportunities for easy travel both to their traditional sun-kissed resorts and to every part of the European continent. A British expatriate house price boom rippled slowly across the French countryside and roared through southern Spain. People began to commute weekly to their jobs in London or Manchester from villas by the Mediterranean. Small regional airports grew, then boomed. Clever, constantly evolving consumer electronics and then cheap clothing from the Far East kept the shops thronged. The Internet, advancing from colleges and geeks to the show-off upper middle classes, then to children's bedrooms everywhere, introduced new forms of shopping. It first began to attract popular interest in the mid-90s. Britain's first Internet cafe and Internet magazine, reviewing a few hundred early websites, were both launched in 1994. The following year saw the beginning of internet shopping as a major pastime, with both eBay and Amazon arriving, though for tiny numbers of people at first. It was a time of immense optimism, despite warnings that the whole digital world would collapse because of the millennium bug, the alleged inability of computers to deal with the last two digits in 2000, which was taken very seriously at the time. In fact, the bubble was burst by its own excessive expansion, like any bubble, and after a pause and a lot of ruined dreams, the new economy roared on again. By 2000, according to the Office of National Statistics, around 40% of Britons had accessed the Internet at some time. Cyber frenzy swept the country, and business, 
Three years later, nearly half of British homes were connected. By 2004, the spread of broadband had brought a new mass market in downloading music and video online. By 2006, three quarters of British children had internet access at home. Simultaneously, new money arrived. The rich of America, Europe and Russia began buying up parts of London and then other attractive parts of the country, including Edinburgh, the Scottish Highlands, Yorkshire and Cornwall. For all the problems and disappointments, and the longer-term problems with their financing, new schools and public buildings sprang up. New museums, galleries, vast shopping complexes, corporate headquarters, now biomorphic, not straight, full of lightness, airy atriums, thin skins of glass and steel. This was show-off architecture for a show-off material culture, and not always dignified. But these buildings were better looking and more imaginative than their predecessors had been in the dreary age of concrete. End of Disc 21